Last week, 4th of July. Had a good time last week on the 4th of July. Having a good time today, as a matter of fact. Last week, 4th of July, we were talking about revolution. Wow. But we were talking about it in terms of an interior revolution. You know, um, if you want to dissect the method in my madness, it's always going to be when we're talking about macro events, when we're talking about things at large, if there isn't a direct correspondence, a direct way for us to see the relevance of those macro issues to our interior life, then I probably won't be talking about it up here. Because this is our space, this is our time to be talking about what's happening interiorly. Once we have fought the interior revolution, now we're free to go out and fight the exterior revolution in any way that we want to do it. In our families, in our communities, in the nation at large, from the policy level, from the top down. But if we haven't fought that interior revolution, if we haven't conquered the basic compulsions that drive us unconsciously, then as we go out there, we're just going to make a mess. And so this is what Jesus is all about. Jesus is about fighting the interior revolution. And we were making the connection between the American Revolution and the birth of Christianity and trying not to see them as just an event. We do that. We take, especially things historically, but also things in our personal lives. We tend to see it as an event when actually they're a process. We talked about the, I asked you the question, what are we celebrating on the 4th of July? Nobody really knew because we all have a different idea what that means. But actually the process of the 13 American colonies stating their desire to separate from Great Britain was a process that started in April of 1776 and lasted all the way into 1777. North Carolina authorized separation in, in April of 1776 and the last signer finally signed the Declaration of Independence after the turn of the year. 1777, and July 4th was where the Continental Congress actually approved the wording of the rough draft of Jefferson's declaration. So it's, it's a process. And then we looked at the birth of Christianity in the same way, that it's a process. From the crucifixion to Christianity being established as a state religion of Rome was a process of nearly 400 years. But a lot was happening in that time. And we were talking about this, that Christianity, as it grew out of its Jewish roots, entered the Gentile or the Greek world. It was like a slow-motion revolution within the Roman Empire. Now, for 250 years, Christianity was persecuted, first by the Jews and the Romans, and then by the Romans but still, because it grew, because in the people's hearts, they continued to try to follow this way of Jesus. They continued to affect the culture around them, the cities, the centers around them, and that was affecting the culture, until finally the empire could not help but take notice and see what was happening. So here's this revolution. And then eventually, Christianity wins, quote unquote. And that was another process. Between the Edict of Milan and the Edict of Thessalonica, about 65, almost 70 years, from 313 to 380, Christianity was first recognized as a religion that could be tolerated within an empire. In other words, it wouldn't be persecuted anymore. And then by 380, with the Edict of Thessalonica, it was actually established as a state religion of Rome. But here's the irony. 
The moment that Christianity won, quote unquote, the moment that it became the state religion of Rome, it actually lost. Christianity as an institution lost its ability to have that vital connection with Jesus as someone who showed the way to an interior revolution that was absolutely necessary. Jesus said, I am the way. See what I do. Follow the way. The first followers of Jesus called themselves followers of the way. This way of living life that would lead to this interior revolution, this radically different way of seeing life, of being able to see the presence of the Father, the presence of Spirit in everyday moments. The church, as soon as it became a state religion, lost this ability to continue to foster this revolution in the people. Once it was allied with Roman power, with Roman wealth, with, with, uh, with Roman status, the church was no longer able to teach or foster these interior revolutions. What it was doing now was teaching and demanding conformity with the institution that it had become, with its own orthodoxy that been, had been established in this same period. It was no longer helping people to discover and experience the Father's love in the deepest way. It was only forcing them to adhere to itself. And even more heinous, after 250 years of persecution, the moment that the church received the power of Rome, it turned and began persecuting everyone else. Every non-Christian and every non-Orthodox Christian in the same way that they were persecuted, with death, with exiling, with confiscation of property. Everything changed the moment that Christianity won. It became the oppressor. It became the new boss. Same as the old boss, right? And this is exactly the moment in history when the desert fathers and mothers, the ones that we're studying on Wednesday night, the ones that were still purest of heart, the ones that were so radically trying to follow Jesus' way, fled into the desert to find the silence and the solitude they needed to reset themselves, to get their feet back on solid ground, to be able to help people to follow their interior revolutions, to follow their way to the Father in the way that Jesus had initially taught. And a thousand years later, Francis of Assisi did the same thing. The church established for a thousand years now, nearly. And Francis saw that there was something so terribly missing. And the voice that he heard from the Lord to rebuild the church was something that he took seriously. And he started from the inside out. And then his followers started another slow motion revolution. Every generation has to find its own way. Every person within every generation has to find his or her own way. This is nothing that can be transferred, nothing that can be given to us, nothing that can be bestowed. And this is what Jesus was trying to get across. This is why he said, I have to go, because you're just following me now. But when I go, then you will be aware of the helper in your midst who will take you to this next level allow you to experience what it actually means to be on fire. Every generation has to do this in the macro, and every person within every generation has to do this within the micro, or it just doesn't get done.
And our generation is no exception. Right now we're seeing a revolt against Christian principles, against the church, in the macro, in our country. In fact, it's more intense right now than it's probably been in 500 years since the Reformation that changed so much in the West. Now, some of you have felt this rebellion going on. You may be aware of it in the news, in the media, but you may have already felt it in yourself. For some of you, it's the reason you're here, right? You rebelled against your old church, the church that didn't make sense to you anymore. You left that church. You had to find something else, and you ended up here. (laughs) But you know what? If you've been, even if you've been here a while, even if that was your process, that you felt that push, that tug, that you needed something deeper, just like the desert fathers and mothers, that you had to flee into greater silence and solitude, into something maybe you didn't even recognize or know what it was as you were going for it. But if you've been here a while now, you might forget. It's easy to forget. It's easy to minimize how deep that angst goes, how deep that angst, that disturbance goes that then foments into anger and resentment against the church, how it's shaping the culture around us and especially the mindset, the worldview of the youngest generations around us. I got an email just this week and I wanted to read a portion of it to you. And it's kind of eye-opening and it's a little tough, so It's going to be something you probably don't hear from a pulpit. This is a young man who self-describes as an atheist. And he writes to me, It's just oddly funny, and yet it's also very bothersome to me to witness these pastors on the Internet and in a few fundamental churches I have experienced in person who say things in the name of God that I feel to be utterly disgusting. And I deem that version of God to be unworthy of my love. But there is nothing I can do about it. He's God, and I'm not. So my burning in hell will be based upon my unwillingness to be forgiven by an abusive dictator in the manner it is demanded to be given, which only reflects on how unforgiving the Christian God actually is. The Old Testament God is a narcissistic, abusive lover who makes you feel like all the problems in the relationship are your fault. That's an interesting analogy, huh? That version of God makes me want to vomit, rebel, reject, destroy pretty much every negative emotion a human can experience inside their own brain for hours at a time. Then comes the Jesus God of the New Testament. I have much less objection here. Who could argue against a forgiving God, right? Jesus said some really incredible things. Well, I don't have a desire to worship Jesus. I have no reason to even believe Jesus is the Son of God. And even if Jesus is the Son of the Christian God, Yahweh, I hate the Christian God, Yahweh. No written words about this Yahweh character have ever given me the desire to respect such a horrible being, and I actively rebel against this God simply because so many disgusting humans are living on this planet, and they are my neighbors who are attempting to be active and living the will of this Yahweh. Don't you wish you would just say what he means? I'm sorry if that was uncomfortable. Sorry if that even seemed blasphemous to you to read in such a context. But I think it's so important for us to understand the depth of what is going on out there. Why so many of our young people are rebelling against this God, are rebelling against the church that has represented this God in such a way 
that they do want to vomit and rebel and see it as disgusting and see it as hypocritical. What the church practice, what church theology, what church doctrine as a human's construct has done to God's Shem. We always talk about God's Shem, right? His name, his reputation, his character in the minds of the people around us has come to this pass. This is where we have gotten to. Now, from the type of anger and disgust expressed here to maybe just cool apathy or even unawareness of the church anymore and everything in between, this is the shape of the revolution that we see in the culture, in the society around us, even if it's only just that people are turning away. The U.S. is becoming a post-Christian nation And we're trying to figure out why, and we're trying to figure out what to do about it. But what we need to do is take a closer look and see what is going on. If we can start to understand it, maybe we have a solution that we haven't thought of. I want to take you through a few statistics, and statistics can be kind of dry, but I'm going to try to liven them up a little bit. But at the same time, even as you're listening to numbers, remember that email. Remember the human drama that is driving numbers like these. Why are there so many empty churches? A study from the Center of Analytics Research and Data says that in the decade ending in 2020, 3,850 to 7,700 houses of worship closed per year in the United States. That amounts to 75 to 150 congregations per week. And these figures are expected to double or triple in the wake of the pandemic. Now, I don't know about you, but did you even know that there were that many churches in the United States? Want to guess how many churches there are in the United States? I mean, it's just an estimate, but the estimate is around 380,000 churches in the United States. It's a lot of churches, but if you're losing them at nearly 4,000 to over 7,000 a week. Now, it's still going to take some time for them all to evaporate, but you can see what we're up against here. Jonathan Merritt writes about America's epidemic of empty churches, saying many of our nation's churches can no longer afford to maintain their structures. Though more than 70% of our citizens still claim to be Christian, Congregational participation is less central to many Americans' faith than it once was. Only one in three of those 70% that claim to be Christians are actually attending church regularly. Most denominations are declining as a share of the overall population, and donations to congregations have been falling for decades. Meanwhile, religiously unaffiliated Americans, nicknamed the nuns, right? They have none of the above affiliations are growing as a share of U.S. population. Another journalist writes that more than 25% of people who attend religious services at least once a month before the coronavirus pandemic have no plans to return to their church, synagogue, or mosque. So this isn't just limited to Christian churches. It's all of the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. 27% of people actually have no plans, immediate plans, to go back after the pandemic. 
Data from the nationwide poll shows that while many people are looking forward to reconnecting with friends and family, shopping for fun, going out to eat as the lockdown restrictions are lifted, only 34% in general say they plan on attending in-person religious services in the next few weeks. And while a majority, 73% of people who attended religious services at least once per month, say they plan on attending those services in the coming weeks, 27% have no plans to do so just yet. The data appears to be in line with a new Gallup analysis showing a marked shift of our still highly religious nation away from formal church memberships. In 1937, when Gallup first measured formal membership in houses of worship, 73% of Americans had formal church membership. And that, that measure remained steady for the next 60 years until it began a steady decline around the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium in 2020. Formal membership in houses of worship stood at 49% at the end of 2020. Several factors, including age and the growing number of Americans who expressed no religious preference, the nuns, were cited as influence behind the trend. You know, think about this for a second. Right now in this country, we have five generations in the workforce. Count them. Five generations are in the workforce all at the same time. This has never happened before in the history of this country. Maybe it's never happened before in the history of the recorded history because so many things are happening. We have the technology now to keep people alive longer. And so people are living longer. They're delaying their retirement for obvious reasons. And younger people are getting into the workforce earlier. So you combine all those trends, and we now have five generations. This is why there's such a culture clash going on. This normally doesn't happen. you got two to three usually tops. And what are those generations? Well, we still have the traditionalists, sometimes called the silent generation, sometimes called the greatest generation. These are people born before 1946. Now, of those people, 66% of that generation have formal church membership. After them come the baby boomers. They're the ones who were born from 1946 to the early mid-60s, all right? A lot of us fall in that category. For us, 58% of boomers have formal church membership. After us comes Gen X, all right? Generation X. They're the ones that started, they were born between the early 60s and the late 70s, 50% of that generation has formal church membership. After Gen X comes the millennials. They were born in the early 80s, mid 80s, until the late 90s. Only 36% of millennials have formal church membership. And then you have Generation Y. Is it Y? Z. Generation Z. You know, they're the ones that are born in the late 90s and into the aughts. And they're the same as the millennials, about 36%. Actually, did you know a Generation Alpha now? Joe's born after 2010. They're still too young to get any stats. So, yeah, we don't know about those. So, but five generations. But notice how from the traditionalists to the Gen Zers, church membership is falling. What has started happening at the turn of the millennium? Well, the baby boomers finally started dying off. And the millennials and the Gen Xs started actually taking the four. And so we're seeing a shift in population. But what we're seeing is that the youngest generations do not have connection to church the way the older generations did. And that is continuing to fall, continuing to move in that direction. It's fascinating how these things work. So what is the reason for this? Why this shift generationally? Why do younger people have so much less church 
participation. Another journalist says that most of the reasons offered as to why such declines are occurring only address symptoms and not the root cause. One doctor writes, what we hear as responses from most of our church leaders are the excuses of cultural decay and changing values, and that the average American views the church with little regard. These are authentic factors, but they're just symptoms. The bigger question seems to be what led up to these symptoms? What led to the problems of cultural decay and the downgrading of moral absolutes? There is more to it than changing values. After all, a change in values has a root cause. It may sound like an oversimplification of the dilemma, but I believe that the real issue has to do with the sincerity and earnestness of our love for Christ. Do you remember what first love was like when you fell in love with your wife or your husband? You could barely do anything but think of him or her. You were thrilled at your newfound relationship. You wanted to tell everyone. You couldn't do enough for the one you loved. You took every opportunity to be with your beloved. Such is your first love which tends to wane if we're not careful. It can be this way in our churches, too. Okay. So, church leaders are saying, okay, it's, it's cultural decay, it's this and that. He's saying that's a symptom, that the cause really is that we've lost our first love. And he had gone on to cite Revelation and the losing of the first love from the church. And it does sound like an oversimplification to me. It does sound like placing blame on us, doesn't it? Are you feeling a little guilty here, you know, that you lost your first love and so you're responsible for the church falling apart? Now, the fact that we have, and many of us have become apathetic, have been complacent about religion and about church, of course, is the problem. That part is true, but it's also not really helpful in terms of us wanting to forge a way forward because I don't think we're still digging deep enough yet. What if the intensity of our love or the lack of the intensity of our love is also a symptom and not the cause? What could a deeper cause that is driving the lack of our excitement, the lack of our intensity, of our feeling for our church be? If we go back to the first half of the 20th century, there were three schools of Viennese psychology, Viennese psychotherapy. Um, that, would be, that would be Vienna in Austria. And um, the three fathers of modern psychotherapy all came out of Vienna, and they each had a different way of looking at what drives people. What is the main drive that drives people through life? Now, Sigmund Freud, he said that we're driven by pleasure, the seeking of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That was the main drive for us. Alfred Adler, who was a, a contemporary of Freud and one of his students, actually, and then broke away because he didn't agree with a lot of what Freud was saying, he developed the second school, which was that everyone has an inferiority complex. We come out of, the, out of our, our families of origin feeling insecure and inferior, so it's a drive to power that really is what drives people through life. But then came Viktor Frankl, who was a generation later, Viktor Frankl was a Jew who ended up in the concentration camps, actually at Auschwitz during World War II. And through the suffering that he saw there and his ability to overcome and survive it and the observations of what he saw in those camps drove him to what he called logotherapy, the third Viennese school, Viennese school. 
And this is man's will to meaning. He said, it is meaning that drives us. The will to pleasure, the will to power, Frankel says, it's meaning. Meaning changes everything if we have that. Take a look, if, if you have your, your handouts there. Yeah, this first set. These are quotes from Viktor Frankl, and just give you a taste of the way he looked at how central meaning was to a human being's life and, and psyche and persona and spirituality. Life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. It's not circumstances that drive it. It's lack of meaning and purpose. If there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. You see where he's going with this? With meaning, life is bearable. Life has purpose. Life has a way forward. And it's only in the absence of meaning that we compulsively chase pleasure and chase power to try to avoid the pain that we feel, the angst that we feel, the emptiness we feel if we haven't found the meaning in life. And that ultimate meaning is love. The ultimate meaning in life is love. And that last human freedom he talks about that nobody can take from you. They can take everything from you, but they can't take this. Imagine being in a, in a camp like Auschwitz. Imagine being the one who still had the ability to choose their attitude, to choose to comfort others, to choose to be a light in that extremely dark place, to give the last piece of bread away. How do you do that? How do you continue to choose in the face of so much despair? It's that last human freedom. Everything had been taken from these people, but they couldn't take that from those men and women who chose their own attitude, who chose their own way in any circumstance. In other words, they chose love. And that was the meaning that gave them the ability to move forward. What did Paul say at the end of his life? I have learned to be content in all my circumstances. He's talking about the same thing. He's waiting to be executed. 
And yet he found a way to choose his own attitude, to find meaning in the suffering, to find meaning in the martyrdom, to find meaning in life because he knew about love. He had experienced the Father's love firsthand in such a way. But once again, this may not be terribly helpful because love is just a word. It's just a word, it's a, or it's a transient feeling that we have. Using the analogy of our first love being like the love that we have for our, for our significant other, well, any of you who have been married for a while, you know that that doesn't last, right? Human emotions go all over the place. If love is just that transient feeling, if love is just a concept, it's not going to do us any good. It's not going to inform us about what is going on in our churches, what's going on in our culture. And it's not just a good deed either. Until it's made completely real in the actions, in the choices, in the experience of our life, it remains at arm's reach. For Frankel, love became real in the concentration camps by seeing what he saw, by feeling what he felt, by being able to overcome himself, to find meaning there. Love became real for him. And for all of us, it's going to be the same. Love becomes real in the midst of our suffering, enduring the pain, that original meaning of suffer, to endure, to allow, to permit. When we allow ourselves to feel the pain that we're feeling, to find the meaning in the pain, that's when love becomes real. Life brings pain, let's face it. But the meaning is up to us. The meaning isn't going to be supplied for us. It's not going to be handed to us on a plate. As we move through the suffering, we either lean in and find the meaning or we don't. And if we don't, then we're just suffering. There is no greater meaning to us. Only we can find our meaning in the pain. And why is it pain? Why does it have to be pain? Why can't it be chocolate chip ice cream that we find meaning? What is the deal with pain? Because pain is what strips away all the distractions, all the illusions that we have built up to try to protect this idea of us in life the way we want it to be. It lays reality bare. But even if we're in pain, if we're not focused on meaning, what are we going to do? We're going to turn to the pursuit of pleasure and power to avoid it to maximize our advantage and to minimize our risk. And we will continue to work against finding the meaning that is there all along. So who can help us to focus on meaning? Who can help us on this way? Richard Simmons, not that Richard Simmons, wrote a little article called How Do We Answer Life's Big Questions? He says, we are seeing a trend where Christians are moving away from their church affiliation and even belief in God. Journalist Brandon Showalter discussed this, asking, what is fueling the trend of Christians deconstructing their faith? For some, this deconstruction emerges from an earnest desire to know the truth and to understand more amid a painful recognition that they have not received adequate answers for their tough, seemingly existential questions from the church. I'd say that's why most of us are here, right? This is a real search for us. We're not deconstructing. He says, others just, for others, deconstruction just seems to be an end in itself. That's not really why we're here. We're here because we couldn't get the answers where we were. 
Something was missing and we knew it. Just like the young man who comes to Jesus and said, I have done everything that I can under my faith system, under my belief system. What's next? What do I do, need to do for eternal life? That was what drove us all here. So how do we answer life's biggest questions? John O'Neill, in his book, The Paradox of Success, writes, the basic questions we encounter when we look deeply into the shadow are spiritual questions. They concern our place and purpose in the world, the significance of our lives, and our personal connection to whatever force keeps the world humming along. Most of us today have moved away from the religious structures that once supplied answers to these questions. Hear that? This man is not writing from a religious point of view. He's writing from a secular point of view. You can hear that. But he says, most of us today have moved away from the religious structures that once supplied answers to these spiritual questions. But the questions have not gone away. Our compulsive busyness, huh? our dread of unstructured time. Think about that. We dread unstructured time. We dread silence. We stay busy. And our reluctance to be alone with ourselves Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity, those four S's that we've been talking about. We fear those. Why? Because then we have to actually deal with what is and who we are. Find the meaning. It isn't just being pumped to us out of social media. Our compulsive busyness, our dread of unstructured time, and our reluctance to be alone with ourselves are rooted in the uncomfortable sense that our lives lack meaning that we are disconnected and alone. O'Neill is referring to the big questions of life, which are spiritual, and they never go away. So what are the big questions that human beings have always asked? Though there are many, here are just three. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my ultimate destiny when this life is over? You see, it used to be our religious structures, as he puts it, our churches, our faith, our religion, our religious communities that helped frame the big questions in life, helped us to answer them for ourselves, to become convinced of what we're convinced of. And all these big questions are questions of meaning. When you come right down to it, they're questions of meaning after all. Meaning, once we have started to grasp it, leads to purpose purpose, once we have grasped that, leads to identity. And identity, once we have grasped that, leads us back to meaning. It's full circle. And it was our religious structures, the church, that helped us to move through that labyrinth, to move through that maze. But people aren't finding it there anymore. Now, if love is ultimate meaning, If Frankel is right, if Jesus is right, then the big questions can all be answered with it, right? Who am I? Love. John knows that, right? (laughs) Why am I here? Love. What is my ultimate destiny? Where do I go when this life is over? Love. God is love. Love can answer all those questions, but... As true as that may be, it still remains kind of unhelpful. It's just words. It's just concepts. 
Only in action is the reality of that going to become real to us in a way that changes things, in a way that can change the church from the inside out. You know, the early church really wasn't a church in the way that we think of a church. It was a movement. You see, some of these movements that take place and they take to the streets and they carry signs, it was a movement. Jesus taught movement. He called himself the way. The first followers, as I said, were followers of the way. There was a way of moving. It was a movement. It wasn't static. It wasn't institutional. It wasn't formal at all. They met in people's houses, but that was just so they could get together and fellowship and eat and sing and praise and hear someone speak, make sure that everybody had enough. What was really happening was in the streets. What was really happening was in their homes and in their lives. It was a movement, a movement. And Jesus said, this is the only way that you can get to the Father. Jesus taught primarily by doing, by risking vulnerability, by speaking truth to power. This is what he was always doing. And the followers, the first followers of Jesus did the same. They were willing to risk their own vulnerability in acts of love, accepting the pain that came with their vulnerability, both institutional from the Roman Empire or from the Jews, but also in their personal relationships, to remain vulnerable, to put themselves out there, to risk something that was valuable to them, to give it away and to see if it came back, even to the point of their martyrdom. Many were killed for their faith, of course. But at the point that the church, this group of people, this movement, right, became an institution now aligned with Roman power, with Roman wealth, it could no longer point to meaning. It could no longer foster the individual member's journey to meaning that only they could take. When Judaism became an institution of the law as perfected under the Pharisees, it could no longer point to meaning. When you read the Gospels, everything Jesus is doing is fighting against that institution as it had become. The Sabbath controversies were all about trying to break through the institution, what the institution had become, just demanding conformance to itself. demanding uniformity of thought and belief from everyone in order to be accepted. Jesus is trying to break through that. Sabbath isn't made for... Man isn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man. He's trying to get them to see there's still a journey that you take within this. He's trying to break through that to get back to meaning. And then when the early Jewish followers of the way, the early Jewish followers of Jesus tried to institutionalize the Judaic code on top of new converts to the faith, especially those who were Gentile, and saying that, yes, you had to be circumcised. Yes, you had to follow the dietary codes. Yes, you had to follow the purity codes. Here comes Paul. You know, Paul is one of those guys. He doesn't mince words. He would write an email, probably like the one. In fact, he did. You want to read it? Read Galatians. That's an email like the one that we read at the top of the, of the page. He says, you know, all those of you who believe that you have to be circumcised, I hope the knife slips. He didn't exactly say that. But it was close. He said, may they mutilate themselves. So how close am I, see? This is Paul fighting against that, trying to break back through to meaning because they were trying to institutionalize the movement, institutionalize the interior revolution, 
this movement of people's hearts to the Father and say, now you just got to follow all these rules and you have to be just this. Well, once you do that, the revolution's over. You're no longer fulfilling the purpose. Paul fought against that. And when the church became the state religion of Rome in 380, it was so strong and became so strong, it lasted nearly a thousand years became institutionalized, no longer was able to foster people to their interior revolution. And here comes little Francis of Assisi, who through his poverty, through his willingness to risk his vulnerability, to take his own interior revolution, started another slow motion revolution. It's almost as if in the 13th century that Francis was the tip of the spear He was the beginning of the end for the church as it had been for nearly a thousand years. A lot of other factors were gathering at the same time. But Francis seemed to crystallize it, and his followers became a movement within the church. And within 300 years, the church had lost so much power, so much prestige, and eventually fell to the Reformation. It didn't fall. It separated. But the power that the church had... For nearly that much time, the church could tell the kings of Europe what to do. The threat of excommunication was total, even to the kings. No more. Another revolution had to break through. Every time the movement slows, calcifies, and becomes institutionalized and ceases to be useful to the people, there is someone who steps up. There is someone who breaks through. And that revolution that last revolution, the Protestant Reformation, which immediately calcified and institutionalized and started persecuting anyone who didn't believe what they believed as it fractured into all of these groups, is now 500 years old. And the revolution is upon us again. This revolution that is playing out as apathy or as contempt, especially among our youngest people, people leaving the church, Youth not even being trained to go to church in the first place. You know, as Angelo pointed out, they're not leaving the church. They've never gone. They've just never gone. That is not part of their culture at all because the church is no longer relevant to them. It doesn't help them answer the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my ultimate destiny? no longer points, no longer leads, no longer fosters a search for meaning. And meaning is everything because ultimate meaning is love. And without that conviction, we're going to just devolve to pleasure and power. We're going to need something to fill that gap. The church is now viewed by so many people as abusive, as intolerant, as superstitious because the church is now more about protecting its own institution than it is about fostering people's journeys to meaning. And of course, this is not all churches. I don't want to paint this with too broad a brush. But every church gets tarred and feathered with that brush, doesn't it? Because they see us all as one thing. And yet, despite everything that I'm saying to you, church and religion done well is critical to us as, a pe- as people as individuals. We need the community. We need the structure. We need the opportunity for service in order to find meaning. That's the circuit that must be closed if we're going to find meaning. 
Church and religion done well is critical to foster that interior revolution that shows us the meaning, shows us what we're convinced of. But church and religion is only done well when it is willing to risk its own institution by allowing human freedom, that last human freedom that Frankel talked about, to choose our own attitude in all circumstances, to choose our own way. A church that isn't willing to lose people in order to let them take this journey is no longer relevant to our society. The church that is done well uses the teaching and doctrine of its institution simply to limit error, not to demand conformity to those teachings, but to show where the guardrails are on the journey. Beyond this point, you're going to fall into the abyss. Here's what grounds us. Our scriptures ground us. They show us the extent of the playing field, and they show us where the dangers are. But within that space, my son, my daughter, go for it. You have to experience it for yourself. You have to be willing to let go of everything that you think you know, even what we're telling you, in order to find out what will come back to you, in order to find out what is really meaningful. That's church done well. Church done well realizes that it can't give people meaning. It can only foster or guide personal journeys. One last bit to read. This comes from... Richard Rohr, and Brian McLaren. There is a difference between knowledge on ice and knowledge on fire. For many Christians, their belief is often just knowledge on ice, not experiential, first-hand knowledge, which is knowledge on fire. Even though we call them both faith, there is a difference between intellectual belief and real trust. There is a difference between talking about transformation and God's love, and stepping out in confidence to live a loving life. Only the second is biblical faith, when our walk matches our talk. When Jesus died, the apostles didn't have a spirit-filled faith. Though Jesus' mother Mary and Mary Magdalene stayed, all but one of the men deserted Jesus on the cross. The apostles were demoralized. They lacked conviction. They had no aim or purpose. But shortly afterwards, they were transformed changed from within, they acted, lived, and walked in a new way. These lukewarm followers began to act like people on fire, or as Acts describes them, they are the people who are turning our whole world upside down. Brian McLaren writes about the need for the fire of the Spirit today. In the millennia since Christ walked with us on this earth, we've often tried to box up the wind of the Spirit in manageable doctrines, We've exchanged the fire of the Spirit for the ice of religious pride. We've turned the wine back into water and then let the water go stagnant and lukewarm. We've traded the gentle dove of peace for the predatory hawk or eagle of empire. When we have done so, we have ended up with just another religious system, as problematic as any other, too often petty, argumentative, judgmental, cold, hostile, bureaucratic, self-seeking, an enemy of aliveness. In a world full of big challenges, in a time like ours, we can't settle for a heavy and fixed religion. 
We can't try to contain the Spirit in a box. We need to experience the mighty rushing wind of Pentecost. We need our hearts to be made incandescent by the Spirit's fire. In other words, church is made for people. Church is made by people. Just like government, right? Not people for the church. Essential for us to understand. You see, in the panic of seeing the church, seeing Christianity itself fading in our own lifetimes, fading in the culture around us, there is this growing call for revival in the church. But here's the problem. Most often the call for revival is a call to simply shore up, to reestablish the traditional institution that was. Kind of going back to the future, you know, going forward by regression. But that dog won't hunt. We know that now. That institution doesn't point to the experience of meaning. Unless we go all the way back to Jesus, or at least Francis, we're going to miss the point. We're going to miss the real revival that our church needs. It's not just about shoring up what has proven not to work for our youngest generations that is no longer relevant and points them to the intense personal journeys, the interior revolution that all of us need. Only people free enough to choose love in all their circumstances can choose to create a church that's free enough, revived enough to guide people to choose love as their ultimate meaning on their own, in their own time, on their own journey. And still, until such a church as that exists again, it's got to begin with each one of us. We need to take the journey. And then we can affect, in a slow-motion revolution, the community, the family, the culture around us. This is the shape of it. It always has been. That's real revival. Let's pray. Father, we do need revival. But we, we need revival in you. Not revival in the constructs of our own hands. We want to go all the way back to the source, all the way back to you, to find out what this revival really looks like, what it, what it means, what it costs to us personally. Father, I pray that we won't leave a stone unturned, that we'll be willing to shine lights into all of the dark, unexplored corners of our lives and our spirit to find what needs to be done in our personal lives and then in our communities. ask that you would be with us through all that. I know that you'll be with us through all of that. Help us to become aware that you are with us through all of this and everything that it's going to take for us to become revived, to become a people that can show that there are different ways that you can be followed, that everyone can respect, that everyone can understand is a positive in our lives 
in our communities to all people. If we can do that, we can change statistics. Thank you, Father, for always being with us, your love and constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.